0: This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers, by writers and readers. Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers, by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan.
1: And I'm Jules Zionside. This week, from tea shops to taverns, how intoxicating substances have shaped fiction.
0: Yes, you heard it right. <laughs> Jules has finally gotten her way, and we are doing an episode all about tea.
1: Yeah, tea and, and other stuff, but and mostly it's stuff. The tea I in- it's... indulge in. So. Yes.
0: <laughs> Jules um... is like, I want to do an episode about tea, but I suppose we have to talk about some other things as well. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's like, I can't just talk about tea in my favourite tea blends. Except. <laughs> Which is just as well, because you don't all need to know what a tea snob I am. So <laughs> moving, moving swiftly along from that admission. Um, yeah, this is really a, a, an episode about mind-altering substances. Um, so if any of that sort of bothers you, then this might be an episode to skip. But on the other hand, it is actually really fascinating how simple chemicals can have had such huge, huge results in, not just on our minds, but in terms of how they've shaped society, civilization, mm. our art, our literature, our history, our laws, <laughs> and our, our socioeconomic states. So um, that's what, what we're delving into. Yeah. Now, obviously, Madeline and I do our level best to give you really, really good research, or, you know, at least, you know, the the cliff notes of really good research but Mm -hmm. we obviously say if you're interested definitely go and check this out because it's such a huge subject it's more than we could possibly cover in a dozen episodes
0: yeah absolutely yeah we we give you we give you the cliff notes guys um (laughs) (laughs) cliff notes and our opinions um so if this is sort of like a hooking your interest a little bit do check it out for yourselves there's a lot of very interesting literature that you can find out
1: there yeah now this episode for me is inspired by two books which i was given arc copies of one is called <laughs> this is your mind on plants by michael Pollan. very appropriate name there.
0: <laughs> wow that's incredible
1: <laughs> I, I love that it's apparently it's its actual name as well He didn't actually change it who you know he's a uh a botanist who writes about psychedelic plants, psychotropic substances. And the other one is Drunk Flies and Stoned Dolphins by One R. Pagan, which is really, really interesting from a biological perspective. But um, just to give you a little little snippet, this is something I did know. Bottlenose dolphins, on encountering a puffer fish, will nudge it with their noses. The fish puffs up and then emits a toxin. The, to- the dolphin then gets stoned on this toxin. So the dolphins do this deliberately, and they've been spotted doing this. Not only have they been spotted doing this, they've been spotted passing the puffer fish around like a group of students with a spliff. <laughs> Not- and summoning other dolphins from far away to come and partake of this special stoned experience.
0: That's amazing. I didn't know that about the puffer fish. I didn't realise that they... They would do it socially as well.
1: Yeah, it, it's really fascinating. Um, most animals will try and seek intoxicants of some kind. If you have a cat who's ever been introduced to catnip or actually valerian, they get very high on valerian as well. Only mm. <laughs> it makes them sleepier. It, it doesn't make them go absolutely like a scatter cat. <laughs> um, then, then, yeah, this is something they go for. And they, they enjoy the process of changing their mental state. Or, you know, they certainly seem to from our anthropomorphic viewpoint. And if you look at things like when the fruit falls in certain parts of Africa and it lies on the ground in the sun and it ferments, you have everything from lions to leopards to bison to fruit bats turning up to eat this pulped alcoholic fruit and get tipsy off it. Elephants too, in fact. Have you ever seen a tipsy elephant?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I... I do remember hearing a story about oh God. I don't even remember where it was. It was just about bees, tipsy bees, which had yes. been which had been eating the the fruit on the ground, <laughs> and they're all flying away like ooh.
1: Yeah, bees <laughs> and wasps with things like that, and it, uh, you know, you see the bumblebees in the height of summer, and they're sort of dr- they they are actually slightly drunk. they they're not just drowsy because they're bumblebees. They are actually sort of. Flying like that because they're a little bit intoxicated. And I'll come back to bees in a minute because there's a really famous and fascinating experiment with bees. (laughs) So, um, yes, so we're talking about mind-altering substances. It and humans are just the same. You know, we like to think that we are a higher brand of species than pretty much every other animal on the planet, but ultimately, yes, we will also seek out intoxicants. And the altered states of mind these chemicals promise,
0: yeah it's we it it's very bizarre when you actually kind of take a step back and look at human behavior in that way. It's like, what did you do over the weekend? Well, I severely dehydrated myself uh, for fun <laughs> what
1: <laughs> Madeline's obviously talking about drinking culture here. <laughs> <laughs> Not sort of I went without water as some kind of tough man
0: Tough man, no. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, so, I mean, it's it's really interesting. And even if you don't want to touch history, you don't want to t- touch folk customs, and you don't want to touch what it's done to literature by literally changing our literally changing our minds, mm-hmm. um, we have to acknowledge what intoxicants have done in order, it, in terms of politics and law, mm. because there are groups that want to exploit um, intoxication not people being intoxicated but people wanting to be intoxicated mm-hmm. and there are people who think it's morally repugnant and try to rail against it and they are political bodies as well Yeah. Um. so tiny bit more on that later but again this is a small episode on something that is you know interests me personally so do your, go go into your own research I will give people reading this if they want them <laughs> that is not a joke or no. Or a mere threat, I will actually. Do <laughs> sh-
0: sh- sh- she'll do it. She'll do it. Okay, so um, let's get started. Um, and and let's start with the. Uh, I-, I actually I kind of feel like where um we- we're going through the day. So let's get started with 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 tea and coffee, uh, before we um before we get into the heavy stuff.
1: <laughs> okay. Um. Now. It sounds as if I'm being very British by saying I want to talk about tea. Um, and let's also bear in mind that the Irish consume far more tea on average per capita than the English every year. So there's that.
0: Yeah, seriously. Um, it's, a,
1: it's, it's a... It's a thing. It's a national thing. It's a, it's thing. a, it's a um,
0: massive thing.
1: <laughs> as in, I was reading a book the other day and it said... Um, which means she ate dinner without tea and the scandalised tone of that (laughs) sentence had me in fits of laughter because yes I understood it I mean um, eating with my family in Ireland you had a cup of tea with your meal I mean you had a cup of tea pretty much constantly but you absolutely had a cup of tea with your dinner if you didn't there was something wrong with you (laughs) okay so Almost everybody in the world at this moment is in a state of altered consciousness. They are intoxicated. Um, no one comments on it because we believe it's normal because everybody is doing it, whether you're doing it in the form of tea, coffee, soda, chocolate, various other sweets which have caffeine added for no other reason than that it's slightly addictive. Mm. Um, we are in a state of altered consciousness because caffeine definitely alters your your mental faculties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have no real baseline of normal to compare it to. And we probably haven't since about 1650. Yes. (laughs) So bear that in mind. Um, Now I'm going to go through, I'm going to take a, a quick tour through the, the early evolution of drinking tea and coffee. Um, There's some heavy stuff here, just to warn you. Buckle in, kids. (laughs) Buckle in, kids. This is going to be a a wild ride. Okay, so we're talking about two separate plants. We're talking about coffea, which is the coffee plant, and we're Mm -hmm. talking about camellia sinensis, which is the tea plant. Um, Sometime during their evolution, they managed to manufacture a chemical that addicts most of the human species. Now, you might think, wow, this is actually a counterintuitive evolutionary move, because what do we do? We pick the coffee beans and we pick the tea plants and then we discard the leftovers after we've steeped them in hot water what's Mm. the big deal well think about this coffee was once limited to a few corners of east africa and certain parts of saudi arabia now it covers more than 27 million acres across the world usually in the tropics And if you look at Camellia sinensis, the tea plant, it originated in southwest China and it now covers 10 million acres across China, Japan and India and various other places. So by containing this highly addictive substance, it's made humans who are pretty good at growing and making shit want to cultivate it. And we have taken it and we have made it more widespread than those plants could ever have dreamed of if they had the faculties in which to dream.
0: Yeah. I I mean that's that's metal as all hell. Yeah. If you try and apply that to other species it becomes really terrifying. Yeah, I mean <laughs> we imagine will apply like ants. To ants. Oh, no, imagine applying that to humans. We shall we shall maximize the number of humans by making ourselves tasty to other species yeah, that will cultivate
1: terrifying. us. <laughs> it's terrifying. I mean, small side note, but You know, caffeine does exist in other plants, including things like chicory and yabri holly and cocoa Apples. Apples. But it's the delivery system, the specific delivery system in the coffee and tea plants that manage to do it. And once caffeine is in your system, it will permeate every single molecule in your body. And it particularly affects your brain. So there's a nice cheerful thought for you all children. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) okay basically the reason that we keep doing it is because the ability of caffeine to change our consciousness in a desirable and useful way um has led to all sorts of actually really quite positive things as well as all sorts of really really terrible things too Mm. um now obviously the plants didn't sort of sit down and think I'm going to evolve in this specific way because evolution is a chance. Evolution is lots and lots of millions of failed experiments that we never even know about because they just get selected against in natural selection. Yeah. Then every so often you get something like, Hey, let's make caffeine. And it is, it is so amazingly perfect for the niche that it goes into. In this case, the human synapse that the, evolutionary adaptation is extravagantly rewarded, as in this case, by us cultivating these plants all across the world.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Caffeine technically is more addictive than heroin. In fact, there's no technically, it's seven times more addictive than heroin. It has less of the more negative effects, but yeah. it, it acts in the same way. It's a psychotropic substance. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so-
0: <laughs> yeah i mean um, i mean it's, it's it's the joke isn't it it's the joke it's like oh don't talk to me until i've had my coffee in the morning and i'm just there like but you people are, are sort of making that joke without realizing no there's there's a very serious effect there and there's a serious addiction there
1: yeah it's definitely doing something to you i mean if you try people who i've gone caffeine free before and i remember experiencing a few headaches which to me is kind of like well I have headaches anyway. I have daily head pain. It's part of a chronic condition. So that to me was kind of like, eh, this isn't enjoyable. They're is slightly more intense, but okay. And then after a while, I was kind of like, I just enjoy the process of drinking tea. So maybe I'll go back. <laughs> um, but people who give up caffeine and try and give it up for several months, it generally, it's the first three to five days that are worse, very much like heroin withdrawal, by the way, which in fact, actually is worse than that. It can go on for far longer than heroin withdrawal. There you go, um, and it 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 can give you mild flu-like symptoms, sort of being withdrawn from it because you are constantly. I mean, we give it to children. We give them soda and we give them chocolate and we we have caffeinated children. Can you can you imagine sitting down and and cooking up a child some smack? You know, you just wouldn't do it, would you? <laughs> At least I bloody hope you wouldn't.
0: Yeah, please.
1: Anyway, so, you know, caffeine, people don't tend to die of caffeine overdoses, but you can over-caffeinate yourself, and it is not good when you do that. No. That's, imagine drinking, I don't know, 20 espressos. <laughs> that would not be good, okay?
0: I, I do remember my brother at one point drinking a six-pack of Red Bull before he got on a plane. Yeah. As a kid, as a kid, I should say, you know, not even as, an, as a fully grown adult. And his his leg twitched uncontrollably for the entire flight.
1: I'm not. I'm surprised he wasn't running up and down the aisles. To be quite honest. <laughs> so um yes, definitely slight caffeine overdose there. Yeah. Um basically though, it is quite difficult to kill yourself with caffeine unless you've got a synthesized in a laboratory, um, pure dose because, which would kill you very very quickly. Yeah. Um simply because we just. We don't get it in that way. We, we take it as a hot drink, generally, or a bar of chocolate or what have you. Yeah. And it is dose that makes the poison. Otherwise, it's technically a medicine. Think of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I, I just think this is a... I'll get to this in a minute, but there's a really interesting comparison between legal drugs and illegal drugs, and technically caffeine is basically a legal drug.
0: Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. Um, okay, and you're right. Uh, proportions, proportions maketh the uh,
1: maketh the distinction. I'm going to talk about two experiments very, very briefly, just because I think they're really, really interesting. Everyone's heard of the 1990s NASA experiments involving spiders, where they gave spiders different psychoactive tr- substances and then looked at the webs they spun.
0: Yes. By the way, if you haven't heard of those, Google them. The images are amazing.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. I feel a little bit sorry for the spiders because it's kind of like, hey, here I am, a spider doing spider shit and fishing flies out of the air with my web and oh my God, suddenly I'm high as a fucking kite. Kind of thing. <laughs> um, what's really interesting about this, I mean, when they gave them LSD, you got really, really fucking bizarre webs. When you gave them weed, they got incredibly intricate, clever webs right up until the point where the high would have dissipated slightly and then the webs got very unfocused. Mm-hmm. And then when they gave them caffeine... <laughs> they spun really strange cube webs with sort of space that a bird could fly through that were basically no good whatsoever for catching anything so remember that it didn't actually make the spider hyper focused um i'm now going to talk about i think it's geraldine geraldine wright geraldine wright found out that there are small doses of caffeine in nectar in in many many plants and she was curious as to why this would be. So she entrapped her in a hive of honeybees and then she put all the bees in little bee straight jackets. <laughs> so it held mobile. made them? I've no idea. But apparently this was very low tech, low budget. <laughs> okay. And what she then did was she fed each bee uh, drops of synthesized nectar, which is basically sugar water some of the sugar water was just sugar water and some of the sugar water had varying degrees of caffeine in it each time a bee was given a dose of caffeinated sugar water she gave it a little puff of scent as well now the idea was to learn whether bees would learn to favor a plant that smelled like something that contained caffeine
0: ah okay
1: now, the experiment worked way, way better than that because bees very quickly became far more animated and more interested when they got the puff of scent. And you can tell that the bee was more more up for the sugar water because its mouthparts protruded. Mm. So it's kind of like, oh, yeah, that's the good stuff. Give me the good stuff. It was even to the point where it was at a level that they couldn't actually detect it because the scent told them that there was caffeine present. They went for it. Um, and it it proved ultimately that you can kind of train a bee's memory bees will go more for plants that contain this caffeine in the nectar which is good for the plant because the bees are obviously pollen distributors
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, and bees will show signs of intoxication they will return to the same plants over and over again they will also do their strange wiggle dance type thing which you know, is something a bee does when it's a little bit high on caffeine, but it's actually really good because it's shaking pollen everywhere. Isn't it amazing how this thing, this this tiny chemical, this tiny little molecule, can completely change like the asexual reproduction of plants?
0: That is incredible.
1: Um, so yeah, she actually did really well with this 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 research and it was so well received that she got lots of funding, so you'll be pleased to hear about that. And so is she able to,
0: to, to sort of get better straight jackets for the little bees?
1: I don't know. I honestly don't know. But it's um, the, the whole little bee straight jacket thing was kind of like, I must tell Madeline this. She must know. <laughs> Which is my usual reaction when I find anything weird. I have to tell Madeline.
0: <laughs> I can't
1: be the only one who knows. <laughs> bees and straight jackets, Madeline, you must hear of this. <laughs> okay, so that's a tiny bit of the science. We can prove that in, in insects that it's you know, it it has varying effects depending on the concentration of the caffeine. It's quite likely that caffeine evolved in plants kind of as a herbicide because too much caffeine is fatal to insects. It'll kill them. Mm. On the other hand, the doses that appear in sort of leaves and things that insects chew upon, well, first of all, it makes the plant taste bitter, so they they probably won't want to keep chewing it. Second of all, it makes the insect really confused and it sort of loses track of what it's doing. Um, now, that that's a really, really clever evolutionary development. Because if you create a chemical in your leaves that kills something that's trying to predate on you, mm-hmm. then what you're doing is you're playing into natural selection by killing off the ones that are not resistant to that chemical. So what yeah. you end up is you end up with far more resistant insects that are trying to eat you. And that's bad yeah. news for you. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, if you just confuse an insect, then what happens is it stops eating you, it flies off, it's confused, and a bird goes oh that one's that one's easy to catch, <laughs> and you kill it in a different way without actually selecting for resistance so I you know the, I could go really into depth with this because this is totally my wheelhouse but i'm I'm going to go on to the history now. I just think it's really, really interesting <laughs> sorry. <laughs>
0: Imagining these plots, just mass murderers, just (laughs) just intoxicate them like little mass sort of murdering geniuses.
1: What I find particularly interesting is that we have employed similar strategies through history, which again I will get into in in
0: a a little bit later on. A little bit later on. Okay.
1: Okay. So, Western civilization, caffeine was more or less unknown to us in the West until the 1600s. Mm. Um, when coffee, tea and chocolate appeared on the scene. So, you know, there was clearly no point to anything before that.
0: (laughs) No. I mean, I'd I'd like to point out that at at the time, people would just drink boiled water. As in, they'd just drink hot water.
1: Um, Yes, I mean, occasionally they steeped herbs in it, but the idea was that if you were having what we know as a herbal tea, you were sick, there was something wrong with you that you were seeking treatment for. Uh, Which is kind of an attitude that much of Romania still has, as in tea is is a medicine, coffee is the proper drink.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, Coffee was known in Africa a few centuries prior and was supposedly discovered in Ethiopia. Um, The story of of the goat boy who discovered coffee beans is is really interesting. Definitely Google that one, guys. Okay. (laughs) But we're looking at, uh, basically, he was a goat herd And he noticed that when his goats had been grazing on a certain plant, berries, they were hyperactive and they stayed up all night. So he picked the berries and showed them to a local monk. The monk sort of ground them down and made a drink out of them and then found that he was able to stay awake during his prayers. And hence we have coffee.
0: That's amazing.
1: (laughs) Um, We don't know how much truth there is in that, but it makes a nice story.
0: It makes for a nice story, yes.
1: Anyway, this is um, after Common Era 850, so quite a long time ago. Tea is even older. It's at least 1,000 before Common Era China, and it wasn't popularised until the Tang Dynasty, which is after Common Era 618 to 907. Um, Coffee and tea changed completely how we live today today, largely because caffeine allows you to have a sharpness and mental clarity and also fends off sleep Mm. but as madeline has just pointed out hot drinks were generally exotic or considered medicine um one of the big contributors were the more tea and coffee were drunk over here the more people were boiling water in order to make a drink rather than just going oh sod it i can't be bothered to it was a big deal to make a fire and then boil water it wasn't like switching on a kettle
0: yeah or putting it in a
1: saucepan Americans. Americans who don't have kettles, you weirdos. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Putting it in the microwave, that's the thing.
1: That's just bizarre. Um, so so people wouldn't, but it actually made that drinking water the safest water that you that you, you could have. So drinking mm. tea and coffee were probably some of the safest things that you could drink. It just meant that you were literally high all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah. I okay, mean, up until it's... that point, they, they'd basically just been drinking ale and beer, so, you know, it was... <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's something you have to bear in mind that in a lot of Europeans drank water and didn't die of horrible diseases. And they they knew to they knew a lot about sort of sanitation. We don't really give the medieval people credit for that, but they really did. But yeah. there were things like tapeworms, for example, that they wouldn't yeah. have known about that definitely appeared in water and in ale because the brewing process didn't kill off tapeworms.
0: Ah, that's fun.
1: Yes. Anyway, in sixteen twenty nine the first coffee houses opened in Europe and in 1650 in Oxford in England, a Jewish immigrant who was apparently called Jacob the Jew, which, you know, I'm sure wasn't his actual name. That was just what everyone called him, Mm -hmm. um, opened a coffee house in Oxford. And it was so popular that soon there were coffee houses everywhere in England and particularly in London, London to the point where there was like one coffee house per 200 people. Wow. They became incredibly popular because it was the one place where men of different classes could mingle, in the sense of, they could sit at the same table regardless of what class they belonged to. So it was an amazing step forward in that respect. Unfortunately, they kept women out of coffee houses. It was only for men. Ugh, typical. But, um, yes, you know, the women had something to say about that a bit later on. Anyway, they used to call them penny universities because you could go in, you'd pay your penny for a coffee... And then everything else was free. The conversation, the exchange of news about finance, politics, the weather, probably because, you know, we are in England, mm-hmm. <laughs> and magazines, books, and things that belonged to the coffee house. You could peruse them at your leisure. In some ways, it was the only access that your working man had to that sort of literature in that age. Mm. So, hence the name Penny Universities. They were amazingly. Um, representative in how they shaped thought. For example, Isaac Newton and Edmund Haley discussed physics and improved their theories in discussing them in coffee houses in England and the rest of Europe. <laughs> 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 and if you want to talk about literature, the literary set gathered at Wills and at Buttons, which were coffee houses in Covent Garden. Uh, so we're talking John Dryden, Alexander Pope, Henry Fielding, Jonathan Swift, Daniel Defoe a whole bunch of others lost to history now and what they did um because there was a very you know in the same way that Chaucer became the godfather of modern english by mm. insisting that we he wrote in his native language so the common person could understand these authors took the cadence of speech and the the rhythms of spoken english and added it to their prose
0: mm
1: which completely changed literature. I, I can't stress how much that changed literature. And so think about it. You've got all these big-brained people sitting around, idling the day away, having big ideas, discussing things, much as Madeline and I talk about things. i <laughs> dissecting dragons. With coffee, which sharpens your mental clarity and gives you basically... I mean, there's, there's, there's two types of focus. There's... There's lamplight focus, which generally children have, which is, like, diffuse. Mm-hmm. And people on psychotropic drugs tend to have that sort of focus as well. And then there's sort of a laser beam or flashlight focus, which is very, very clear and sharp on very specific objects. So you can just imagine the quality of the conversation because nothing do... Intellectuals like nothing more than to talk to other intellectuals and sharpen their ideas. <laughs> think it's fair to say that um anyway this is this is a funny little aside so i've included it because it amused me greatly now doctors were unsure of the efficacy of coffee's benefits and you know over the years right up until recently coffee's been linked to all sorts of things basically if there's a disease at some point coffee's been blamed for it without really any evidence yeah um but the women did not like it at all partly because their men were not at home their men were out Drinking coffee until all hours. <laughs> and then coming home at all hours. Um, they weren't it's... coming home, joke, they were coming home really, really chatty.
0: I, I just really like the idea. Just put this and where have you been? At another coffee house.
1: With your coffee friends. With
0: your coffee friends.
1: <laughs> it even led in 1647 to the Women's Petition Against Coffee. Um, Their argument was that coffee is an enfeebling liquor, robbing men of their potency and sexual energies, making them as unfruitful as those deserts, whence that unhappy berry is said to be bought. I especially like the subtitle of this. The subtitle of the pamphlet was humble petition and address of several thousands of buxom good women languishing in extremity of want. And as a a little aside from that same pamphlet, men arrived home with nothing stiff but their joints. In other words, men sit around all day talking big ideas, drinking coffee, excluding women, and when they get home, they haven't even got the decency to knock me up. (laughs)
0: Oh, Victorian women really did have it hard, didn't they?
1: Oh, this is the 1600s. Oh,
0: sorry, (laughs) 1600s. My apologies.
1: Yes. So um, (laughs) anyway, uh, eventually tea houses came about. This was in 1717 when Thomas Twining of Twining's Teas, who knew that they'd been going on that long, um, set up the first tea house, which soon became more popular even than the coffee houses. And tea became eventually a more popular beverage. Um, there there's there's lots of stuff with the coffee houses. Charles II tried to shut them all down because he thought people were in there talking, fermenting rebellion. Which spoiler alert, they were. Um, <laughs> and again, uh, various French monarchs have tried to shut down coffee houses because of fermenting rebellion. And again, people were. Yeah. You See, Les Misérables, they're in a fucking coffee house. Okay. <laughs> But you could also argue that coffee heralded in the birth of rationalism. Um, it certainly developed mathematics and mm. physics because you had people sitting together talking, drinking something that sharpened their minds. Um, mm. And, you know, uh, I've already talked about what it did for literature. Um, <laughs> funnily enough, the minute hand on the clock we, I mean, we've had clocks since the medieval era, but it only had one hand, it had the hour hand. The minute hand did not arrive until caffeine arrived. Because minutes didn't really matter at that point. You you sort of guessed guesstimated the time via the sun.
0: Yeah, but when you're really high on caffeine, by God, you
1: It's kinda of like we should have a minute we should, <laughs> we should divide we should... an hour into sixty, 60 minutes. minutes. <laughs> Why is everything going so fast? Oh wow. <laughs> so um yeah, and this is where uh, I, I've I've deliberately stayed away from one thing, but I will definitely mention it at the end. But basically work became regularized and routined and people obviously had to become more temporarily dis- disciplined mm. um, because the sun wasn't good enough anymore. If your employer and we're moving ahead to sort of the eighteen hundreds, if your employer wanted you at work by nine o'clock in the morning, although it's more likely to be half past seven,
0: mm-hmm. then
1: you needed to be you needed to know when half past seven was. Hence the minute hand, and you know, yeah. you get your pay docked or you lose your job. Yeah. Um, so I mean, obviously tea was much more affordable for the working classes uh tea sweetened with sugar actually fueled the industrial revolution it allowed the working class to endure long shifts brutal working conditions mm-hmm. and near constant hunger and we're sort of i know we're skipping about along the timeline but if we're looking at the 1800s uh your <laughs> your life as a working class man was not great and your life as a working class woman was bloody appalling yeah as in everything went to your children and your husband first and that it was one of the most common causes of death for women working class women in that era was starvation or complications to do with starvation because everything went to everyone else in the family first and that was just how it was um so yeah while I wouldn't advocate sugar as a great sort of source of calories it certainly was better than than boiled cabbage water which is what a lot of those women had to live on yeah um so anyway uh are you yes so it, it it sort of allowed the industrial revolution to happen because i mean again i can't really go into the industrial revolution because it's so huge yeah but basically <laughs> it's um if you have people working with machinery, particularly the early machinery, which didn't really have safety checks and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and you didn't want to lose fingers and things, having some sort of drink, which actually sharpened your faculties, even when you were exhausted, mm. um, was really helpful. Yeah. In very that very, Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm going to talk about slavery very briefly. It's impossible to talk about tea, coffee and sugar without talking about slavery.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Um, now, I've talked about where tea plants and coffee plants came from um, and the, the fact that we've made them widespread across the world and we did that usually by stealing the secrets because a coffee originally was sold by Arabi merchants and they would roast the beans first so that they could not be propagated. Um, mm. Obviously, so I think it was a, a French merchant managed to sail away, from, <laughs> sail away from the coast of Africa with a handful of un. Unroasted coffee beans. He nearly died in the attempt, but he did actually manage to propagate a coffee plant um, on the on the slopes in the more Mediterranean part of France. Um, so finally, the coffee was out there in the world. Um, in terms of tea, Robert Fortune disguised himself as as a Manchu. He was a Scotsman, by the way. <laughs> Robert Fortune, <laughs> Scotsman, disguised wow. himself as a, a Manchu merchant and sort of came in. And in classic Scottish fac- uh, fashion, took over a small farm in China that was out of the way, mm-hmm. uh, forced the farmers to work for him and propagate tea plants and things, and then sent them sent them out into the world. And hence the British Empire got hold of tea. Uh, the British Empire already held India by that point and decided that they would do very well if they just had <laughs> had tea plants planted in huge plantations in India... And um, rather than trading with China for tea, and, and that's how tea came to India, ultimately. I mean, I'm really boiling it down to its constituents, no pun intended, but uh, that, that's how that happened. So, you know, we can't move away from tea, coffee and the fact that it has a long history of exploitation. Yeah. Uh, both in terms of um, white slaves that were taken and sold to the Barbary, sold by Barbary pirates off, off the North coast of Africa in terms of black slaves who were taken from Africa to plantations in terms of the Indian workers in the caste system who were forced to work and labor at tea picking. And it is backbreaking work. Same with coffee, mm. um, same with the sugar cane, which was grown in South in the Southern parts of America, etc. Um, And it, it's there and it, it's no good ignoring it. So while tea and coffee have done an awful lot of good things in terms of development, um, yeah the cultivation of them has done an awful lot of bad things. And I don't want to talk about it without saying yeah. something.
0: No, we, we absolutely do need to acknowledge that. Yes. Um, it's, it's a very long, it's a very bloody and very sad history. Um, I, I, one thing I, I did think that um, India already did have some tea, obviously, uh, you know, they're, they're connected with China, by, <laughs> you know, by land. <laughs> Journey don't... to the West is...
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't think they were actually growing it in huge plantations the way the, that um, no, no, Europe c- wanted.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, certainly they weren't growing in huge plantations, but um, I I might be wrong. I might be wrong, but I did think they did have tea, but not, yeah, certainly not on the way that it was sort of... Um, that, that, that the plantations were created,
1: um, uh, because... I- yeah. I'm not sure because China, generally, until someone manages to steal something like silkworms, mm. um, Marco Polo, um, generally are quite good at holding on to their secrets. They're quite good at keeping their borders closed and getting mm. rid of incomers, or historically they have been. So I don't know. And, you know, with Robert Fortune stealing the tea plant, that's going back again to the 1700s. Yeah. So the tea in India could have, could have technically... Um, come from that time or maybe someone was kind of like yeah i'm growing a tea bush it's really pretty kind of thing and not really thinking yeah i could grow lots of this and trade it
0: yeah and or maybe we'll they see. or maybe they were just trading with china and they were taking some <laughs> I, don't yeah. I don't know i don't know I, as i said i might be wrong but i i'd always had that impression um but yeah no it's a very very intricate history and one that is filled with blood and suffering unfortunately yeah.
1: Um, When we should also, while we're at it, also mention the fact that what a lot a lot of what Britain especially traded with China was opium. Yeah. And an awful lot of Chinese um, became opium addicts and and died. And in the same way that we had opium parlours then opening in London and Mm -hmm. an awful lot of the sort of mid to working classes then died of opium addiction. Some of the upper classes as well, in fairness. So, yes, all all these intoxicants have a tangled web together. Um, There's one final thing I do want to mention, because I think this is really interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. You could argue that caffeine kind of birthed capitalism because it gave you the regulated working schedule. Um, Things like night shifts, and that would have been unthinkable prior to having caffeine, having something that would break your natural circadian rhythms. Um, But... I specifically want to talk about a neckwear company called Los Wigwam Weavers.
0: (laughs) Wow. Okay, that's a name.
1: Yeah. Uh, This is 1950s in America, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, Who found that after the Second World War, all their promising young male weavers were gone, or, you know, enough of them that they couldn't carry on. So they tried employing older men. The older men lacked the ability to create the quality weaving that they they were faint pride themselves on. So they tried then employing middle-aged women. The middle-aged women had the dexterity and the ability to create the weaving, but they couldn't stand the, these 12-hour shifts just standing at a loom. Yeah. So what they did was they introduced the coffee break. The coffee break <laughs> basically meant that for 15 minutes uh, after every four-hour shift somebody you could get you were entitled to a 15 minute coffee break that was paid time so you, you didn't lose any money for those 15 minutes and you were given complimentary coffee you didn't have to bring your own it was brewed for you and strangely enough this uh, reinvigorating 15 minutes with with coffee that was provided made them much better workers and we now still employ that as a, a standard pretty much for most companies now, every three, I think it's three to four hours, you are entitled to a coffee break.
0: Wow, <laughs> it puts a whole new mean it's 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 not the break, but it's like drink some coffee so that you continue to be an efficient worker
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's a great frame job because it was framed in a way that it was it was basically saying that. <laughs> you know we're looking after you we're a good employer and you would think yeah they are a good employer i feel so much better and you absolutely do the thing with caffeine is you are robbing peter to, pe- to pay paul coffee caffeine itself contains no calories it doesn't actually give you any energy what it does is it allows you to borrow on tomorrow's energy yeah so what you're doing is you are stacking up a tiredness crisis that eventually will demand repayment it it will happen yeah um it, it basically works by the caffeine molecule getting to your synapse recept, your, your receptors faster than adenosine. Adenosine is the molecule that tells you to sleep or tells you you need to rest. Mm-hmm. And it blocks the receptors. So you think, yeah, I can go on forever. But there is a piper to pay at the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> You're getting into debt. <laughs> yes. So it's... there we go. That is that is caffeine. So tea and coffee. i got to talk about tea. And <laughs> um. I think we should talk very briefly about alcohol.
0: Yeah. It's the... <laughs> Sorry, speaking of the whole... Um, <laughs> the kind of the debt to pay and, and, and going on to alcohol. Every time I think about this, there is a line in Archer. Did you ever watch Archer? Oh,
1: yeah, Archer's brilliant.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a, there was a line in Archer season one, which still gets to me every time, which is Archer talking about the fact that he, he can't stop drinking now because he's afraid that the accumulative hangover will literally kill him.
1: Yeah, it is basically... A lot. I mean, I think someone says his blood's about 80% alcohol at this point. Yeah. <laughs>
0: just afraid the accumulative hangover will literally yeah. kill me. Um, so it's just the caffeine thing. It's like, you stop drinking caffeine, the accumulative tiredness will <laughs> literally kill you.
1: Yeah. Okay, so alcohol has a much longer history than tea or coffee or chocolate or anything like that. Um we have been able to brew some kind of alcoholic beverage since we lived in caves, so thousands and thousands of years. And it was it used to be kind of a special occasion type drink. Um, and it soon became a safer method. Some, something that was generally safer to drink or preferred to drink. We, you know, there was no lemon squash or anything like that. Whatever it yeah. is, whatever your beverage is, <laughs> um, this is probably why caffeine made such an impact because people went about in a low-level state of being, well, pretty much drunk most of the time. <laughs> And then caffeine turned up and sobered everybody up and sharpened everyone's faculties and you you (laughs) got those great thoughts forward and everything so i I do find that interesting i i want to just a little mention aside that alcohol was given by the egyptian slave owners to the hebrews Uh, for the simple reason it was given in the form of beer now the simple reason for this is it was cheap to produce alcohol does tend to fog you up so while you may act erratically you generally are not very organised in how you're acting erratically. So yeah. it's not like giving people load of coffee and making them sharp and making them think of ideas and ferment rebellion. It does the absolute opposite. It makes you more biddable, ultimately. Hmm. On top of that, it's basically beer is basically bread in liquid form. So it was a form of sustenance that was cheap to produce. Yeah. So they actually kept the slaves in line by keeping them fairly drunk most of the time. Wow. Wow. Um, anyway a lot a lot of the stuff about alcohol is even easier to find than the stuff about tea and coffee so absolutely do your own do your own research on things like that and obviously there's alcohol that gets mixed in with mind-altering substances such as absinthe which again fascinating you should totally check that out um, but let's have a brief look at how alcohol has enhanced or obstructed literature because I've got to say, I don't think alcohol has made that much of a contribution other than if you tend to think of your sort of um, your, your Voltaire's and your your French poets and things who were drinking good wine and talking about literature. So you would have got some of the ideas and the same sort of things as the coffee, then. But even then, they were drinking coffee at the same time.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, the thing is, it's it's interesting because um, alcohol, as well as as coffee, um, had the other uh, the other effect, <laughs> effect, had the other effect, had the other effect of it being a social thing. Yes. Um, uh, like opium and stuff like that. It it, it just does. It's not very sociable. I just <laughs> <do things. laughs> we'll go as a party and we'll, <laughs> we'll just lie around in an opium den
1: I think um, the thing is if you take opium then even if you do it as a social activity with other people and I'm absolutely not advocating this guys but yeah. if you do do that then your trip is alone
0: yeah it, it is it's it's honestly like it. whereas, whereas alcohol and coffee I mean this is a shared experience you're kind of on the same level particularly if you're drinking the same amount at the same time um and and you communicate you talk um you kind of get to the sort of the stages obviously it also depends on what your alcohol tolerance is whether you've eaten stuff like that or how much you've drunk um but you know it's a combined experience and it's yeah. also t- it's just the other kind of thing is it's tasty um and particularly in the the mediterranean um and i know this is the case you know everywhere but particularly in the mediterranean um and sort of going on from the mediterranean into you know um the middle east um food and drink are at the center of social interaction
1: it's very uh, much a family thing as well you find it yeah. amongst the sort of the spanish and yeah. the 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 latina type communities as well it, it's yeah. a very big thing
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you get into sort of Turkey and and um, you know other areas as well. And <laughs> you 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 drink, you eat late. Everyone eats late because you have a siesta in the in the afternoon when it's hottest. You eat very very late. You you're up late. You have alcohol, and then you kind of finish finish it all off with a with a cup of coffee at night. And I, I love it because, I, as I said, I've spent most of my life in the Middle East uh, with my family. And... <laughs> it's the only time the only time when we're out there and we're out for dinner that's the only time anyone anyone would think of drinking coffee at night you'd never be at home you'd never be at home and be like oh you know what i want before bed a cup of coffee
1: no one does that it's strong coffee as well it's like my parents have been known to have a milky coffee before bed which means instead of making it with water you make it with milk Mm. And you're kind of like, well, I guess the tryptophan and the milk would be very relaxing, but you are also taking on board a stimulant. So I'm not sure yeah. how that pairs. But particularly Turkish coffee is really, really strong.
0: It's very, very strong. Yeah. Um, and yeah, coffee and and it particularly coffee. I think um, in the Mediterranean um they do drink tea they they have tisane tisane that's just sort of to help you sleep um but but just coffee the smell of coffee the the, the kind of the, the whole community feel and wine obviously um where we're from in bourgogne there are a lot of vineyards um and it's it's not just a delicacy it's it's there's so much choice there's so much variety of flavor there's so much so much of it is grounded in the culture as well and and all of these kinds of things so it's it's a very social thing it's a very sociable thing um for you so that when you you're opening a bottle you do it when you you've got other friends around you you have you know an apéritif um, you put the world to rights kind of thing it's just it's just something that you do and it, it's deeply deeply ingrained in the culture
1: yeah yeah definitely so yeah I I think the thing is you can have some fantastic talks um, that are fueled slightly by alcohol mm-hmm. but I'm not sure that they then produced the clarity of I must write this down, or I must go away and fiddle with this this mathematical model, in the same way that perhaps coffee did.
0: Is it? Oh, who's the author? Oh, I've just um. Oh, be quiet. Um, was it a great Gatsby author?
1: Uh, um, F. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Thank you, Scott Fitzgerald. Sorry, uh, I'm,
0: I'm not sure whether it was him. Uh, who it was? Uh, with the saying was "write drunk, edit sober."
1: Yeah, I, I'm not sure that was him, but yes, um, I actually kind of applaud that sentiment. <laughs> not in terms of yeah, get it's... drunk before you write anything.
0: Hemingway, Hemingway, Hemingway said, "Write drunk, edit sober." Definitely edit sober. Um, I think it was just because he was writing drunk. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, which which you know is is fair. You know, whatever whatever works for you. Although if you edit sober. I think I'm just trying to think the things I might have written down drunk and then going back to edit it I'd be kind of like Black Books with Bernard Black going <laughs> what these tax returns going what? What? what what is it what the fuck does this mean
0: if you live in an apartment by the river but are not blind what <laughs> um yes <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I I have had moments where I've been like, oh, you you know, I've been tipsy and I'm writing something out and I'll be like, oh, this is great, it's flowing so well. And the next morning just being like, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) I think it's this sense of ease that comes with writing like that. I also think that, you know, you can, you can actually sometimes become, it depends what level you are of alcohol, but you can actually, there's a brief moment where you drink alcohol where you become more eloquent and then it descends very rapidly from there
1: yeah yeah i'd agree with that okay let's move on to tobacco opium and other substances
0: (laughs) Ah, we're on to the psychedelics um Uh, (laughs) tobacco tobacco always amuses me because yeah (laughs) sir walter riley Yes, arriving back in <laughs> arriving back in England like a uh, here. I bring you potatoes and tobacco. <laughs> yes, um, <that's>, uh, yes. <laughs> so Walter, there's smoke coming out of your mouth. Oh, haven't you heard?
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so talking about the history of substance use again. This is something we've been doing since times, so we've been doing yeah. it since we lived in caves people have been taking dodgy mushrooms they've been experimenting with psilocybin mm-hmm. they have been probably experimenting with things like ayahuasca and uh thorn apple and things like that yeah um, i'm not going to go into how you prepare any of these things because i'm not sure what the legalities are so
0: it's not gonna yeah. happen. no absolutely um i mean and these things have uh, as you know we previously said the these have shaped art you know, they've also shaped mythology, religions, you know, ancient sort of folklore and things like that. It's had a profound effect on the way that humanity developed.
1: Definitely. So with tobacco, obviously, the addictive component is the nicotine. Um, mm. Most people agree that it's bad to smoke now, or at least bad to smoke in the way we did. The Native American <laughs> tribes used tobacco in... Basically, a tobacco ceremony. So that there are variations on this, Mm. but the one that most people will be familiar with is the use of smoking a peace pipe when you're bringing a couple of tribes together, um, either to settle a dispute or to settle a marriage between Mm -hmm. two tribes, etc. And I think it's worth just saying at this this juncture in time. And again, I have not got the time to really go into it in detail in this episode, but basically. We need to get away from this idea of the noble savage because that really does everybody a disservice. They were incredibly complex societies. They were very politically motivated societies. The fact that they were living in a way that most westerners turned their noses up because you know they hadn't developed things like um, ships that could travel across the sea or heavy machinery, etc., or cannons. Yeah. Um. A- again, that's that's really doing everyone a disservice. They. Uh, the idea that we just rocked up and and slaughtered innocent people who didn't know any better again, it, history is far more nuanced and complicated than that. So yeah, there also is that there were where,
0: lots of different tribes.
1: Absolutely, there's over a hundred at least, and we've yeah. probably got some that were lost to history, unfortunately. Yes. Um. I also think you know, Madeline mentioned Sir Walter Raleigh. Sir Walter Raleigh, who Sir Sir Walter really rather a wally. Um, <laughs> kind of took credit for the things he discovered. Uh, This was the beginning of the Doctrine of Discoveries whereby people would, usually from the British Empire but also from the rest of Europe because none of them were witnessing either, they had superior technology, they turned up in a place, they discovered something and they took credit for it. Unfortunately, then that item became divorced from its original meaning, which was often spiritual,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and was just used like it was a plaything. and. In in best case scenarios, um, it was an insult. In worst case scenarios, people were slaughtered over it. Yeah. So again, this is this is another. I'm not going to go into detail because I haven't got time. But at the same time, I'm not going to pretend it's not there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. Um, it, and the thing is, it wasn't just a oh, it's happening. Then the long standing consequences. I mean, can still be felt today, the structures which were put in place uh, because of this.
1: Yes, Uh definitely. Um, Which brings us on to mescaline, which is the active component of peyote. Peyote is a cactus, which is actually borderline endangered species because, again, a, a lot of people wanted to have the mescaline experience and started going a bit mad picking it. It's illegal in the United States for anyone who is not part of a Native American tribe and known and registered as part of a Native American tribe to propagate, collect, or utilise peyote. So just to be absolutely clear on that. Um, you—if I think if someone invites you to a peyote ceremony, it's different because you're doing it as part of a spiritual practice. But the Native American church has rights to it as, as a church, as a religious body. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody else is supposed to touch it, and I think really that is how it how it has to be. So that one's that one's off the table. What's really interesting about mescaline and purity is that it was relatively recently discovered. It was certainly discovered after sort of the rounding up and the decimation of the Native American tribes, and what many Native American tribes now Feel and believe about peyote is that actually it's done far more to help redress the wrongs and heal the wound, the, the spiritual psychic wounds the inherited trauma mm-hmm. that, you know uh, of that kind of um, well, de- decimation and, and the the people with the superior technology won and that was the way it was done was, was appalling and no one's going to argue any differently i hope um but but their peyote ceremonies their ability to recapture a lot of their lost spirituality and things um has done more to solve the wounds of the spirit if you like now what i find particularly interesting about this is the fact that there is ongoing experimentation now for people with ptsd with certain forms of depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. with psychotropic substances which is very very effective so they've tried ecstasy with people suffering from PTSD specifically people coming back from wars with PTSD mm. and it's been incredibly effective in you know in controlled circumstances in controlled doses the same with depression um things like the extractions things like psilocybin things extracted from mushrooms has been very very effective at treating people and it's a case of it's it's been better in many circumstances than the <laughs> the legislated antidepressants which again any drug that you have to take constantly there is one day going to be a piper to pay for it it's just that in order to live now you might be better off putting it on the long finger as it were yeah um and that's not to say antidepressants are bad they do a lot of people a lot of good yeah and you need to take what you need to take in order to be able to function i do find it interesting that things like psilocybin and lst <laughs> and magic mushrooms and things have been used in a way that have people have described an expanse of consciousness and suddenly realizing that actually the universe is really made of love, that we're all connected, that there's no reason to be afraid of death, that actually it breaks the habits and cycles of the mind that are so common in forms of depression and anxiety. And that, uh, there are some people who then the, the depression reoccurs, but sort of doing an acid trip once every six to 12 months really seems to have done them an awful lot of good i just think that's really interesting when you compare it to sort of the native american peyote Mm. um the native american church rituals
0: well it it is very very interesting because um when you look at sort of depression anxiety things along those lines um These are perpetrated by patterns of thought, um, which often work in a cycle, and they're very difficult to kind of, it's very difficult to break those patterns. It takes a long time. And throughout that, there's there's a chemical imbalance, which is, again, being perpetrated by patterns of thought, which perpetrate patterns of behaviour. All yeah. of these things are linked. So, regardless of what's causing your depression, whether it could, whether it's trauma, whether it is just that you happen to have a chemical imbalance um, within your brain um, that then causes you not to want to socialize or go outside, which makes the chemical imbalance worse, etc. Um, and you know, part of you know things like therapy and stuff like that. It's all about readdressing. Um, w- well, medication, the medication that often comes into things like um uh, you know Prozac and stuff like that they're all about readdressing the chemical imbalance or basically keeping things kind of even um but that doesn't readdress the patterns of thought you know things like counseling can often do that um but having mind altering drugs and this is not me advocating people going out and having mind altering drugs this is me saying
1: experiment by yourself guys. yeah
0: this this is me saying that i i do think the research which is being conducted is very very good um i think there is a historical precedent for the use of of, of these kinds of drugs for trauma and that like things like um cannabis you know being used for uh people who have um seizures has been able you know has helped people and things like that again the the blind sort of ban on these kinds of uh stimuli um and psychedelic substances um, is isn't good because there are there might very well be time and place and condition and situations where they can be appropriate and where they can save people's lives and so just saying no, we don't want it um it's bad in one context um is is narrow minded and small and certainly for some of the research that you know I've done in the past and people that I've spoken to who have used psychedelic drugs you know they've talked about these kind of these experiences some of them have had incredibly bad experiences um and some of them have talked about the fact that these drugs allowed them to break patterns of thought because it was altering their mind. It, it was a breakaway from this cycle, this circle that was going round and round like a whirlpool, which they couldn't get out of because they couldn't see the exit. And then suddenly they were kind of removed from it and they could look at it as a whole. They could look at the world as a whole. Um, and so it was an incredibly positive experience for them, which then prompted a very positive change. Um, so yes i i am very very impressed with you know current studies um in the use of certain psychedelics used appropriately um and you know carefully under under you know scientific conditions um to treat people with ptsd um and you know other kind of traumas or or mental illnesses or mental disabilities Um, I think it's very, very positive. um, And I I hope that it's a research that continues.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we can honestly say that uh, psychotropic substances and opium and probably tobacco to a lesser Mm -hmm. degree have all definitely influenced history, as we've talked about, but also they have definitely influenced things like art, music and literature. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, So if if we're talking in terms of music, probably a lot of the Beatles' music was influenced by by LSD. Yes. Um, Certainly the White Album, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Um, (laughs) There's many other artists as well, uh, David Bowie, um, various others of a similar era. And it's, you know, the, the more not even the more ultra music but somehow it allowed them to make connections that weren't there what i've heard people say about lsd and again i'm not advocating people take it because having seen someone have a bad lsd trap trip has kind of like yeah i'm not advising anyone to do this without knowing exactly what they're doing yeah but it's to know what you want out of an experience not to do it just because you're bored or because you want to try something new but to know what sort of experience you want and to go in looking for something there is definitely a spiritual dimension to this, if not a religious dimension, if we're talking about things like peyote. Yeah. Um, Um, So, yeah, it it is really, really interesting.
0: Yeah. And again, also, I... For all that I can advocate, you know, it's medical uses, um, I'm very much a person who has never been particularly interested in sort of just recreational use of... Drugs. Yeah. Um. Um. If you are out there and you feel like, no, I've really, I've really got to do this stuff like that, mm-hmm. I don't recommend it. I think I don't think it's a good idea. But if you are going to go and do that, do not ever, ever do it alone. Never ever take any kind of mind-altering substance which is going to have a huge effect on you alone I mean, really, you shouldn't really drink alone either, alcohol a little bit, you know, but to get drunk completely on your own isn't a good idea, that on its own is not a good idea, um, any kind of mind-altering substance uh, which is going to result in a trip, hallucinations um, never ever ever do that alone
1: yeah a word about opium. Opium obviously comes from the opium poppy. <laughs> Sorry, this isn't me suggesting people. And now from our sponsors. And now from our sponsor. What about opium? Uh, we're not being sponsored by opium. are we? <laughs> no. if we are. We should definitely charge more. We
0: should. <laughs> that, that was the, the objection you had. Jesus. Okay.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, um, opium obviously comes from the opium poppy. Um. Most poppies do contain some opium. Don't go and experiment, guys. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But I will say that how opium is presented and delivered seems to change things. Opium is highly, highly addictive. You have to be very, very careful. Um, On the other hand, if we're talking addictive substances, if there is something lacking within you and in your life, you are far more likely to become an addict than if not. Um, they've done a series of scientific experiments with rats. They did this yeah. with well, they did this with cocaine. And they had rats in a normal bare laboratory set up and they let the rats at cocaine. And the rats would break normal rat patterns of behaviour and actually cross open, unsheltered ground to get to the cocaine. They wanted it so badly. And then someone else came along and said, yeah, but you've got them in this bare barren cage with nothing to do, nothing to play with. Mm -hmm. so she made basically like a rat utopia and she offered the rats normal food and food laced with cocaine and something like 80 to 90 percent of the rats ignored the food with the cocaine because they had a far more happy existence in a cage that was more suited to them and their needs
0: yeah absolutely
1: that's absolutely replicable in humans as well i think so you know being an addict isn't just someone being lazy and just letting things go?
0: <laughs> yeah, human beings need stimulation. I mean, to the point that, that there was another experiment they did. Um, I'd, I'd love to know who's doing these experiments. Who comes up and is like, okay, I've had an idea. Let's give rats cocaine. Um, uh, so they, they did this thing where they, they put um, people into a room um, and the room was completely empty. It was completely void. They had nothing in there. They were completely on their own. Um, and the only thing in there was that they there was a little box um, or something like that, um, or a button that you could press, which would give you an electric shock. A small one, not not one enough to kill you, but you know, one that would definitely hurt. Yeah. Um. And a disproportionate number of people after a certain amount of time alone in the room gave themselves an electric shock. Um, and worse is that some did it again, despite having done it once, because they were so bored. Um, people would will literally hurt themselves for stimulation because we are not... Des- I mean, solitary confinement is a torture for a reason. To be completely, you know to have all stimulation removed from you is a type of torture. Um, So, yes, if you are a person who is, you know, I mean, there are also hereditary um, issues when it comes to um, uh, substance uh, dependency and things like that as well, That you know, so that there can... There can be something that's inherited within you, which means you're more likely um, to fall victim to um, substance. uh, What what's the word? Dependency. Yeah. Um, But also, yeah, people who are suffering mass trauma, difficulty, um, discrimination, uh, etc., are also more likely to end up taking drugs because it's one of the only things that they can do in a life that is otherwise a kind of torture. So yeah, it's it's one of those big things as well, in that when you have this and the the quote unquote war on drugs, the people who are being punished very often, particularly in places like America, um, are, are not are not the perpetrators of of yeah. violence or anything like that. It's 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 coming from somewhere else. So.
1: Let's be clear: the war on drugs was a political choice yeah. in order to get the right number of people voting in the right direction. Yeah, and it absolutely, basically, fucked the regardless of ethnicity or skin color, or whatever. It fucked everybody who was poor. Yeah as it was designed to do they were treated as throwaway people and that is a whirlwind that america is still reaping today and i'm not saying that we've necessarily done better in other parts of in parts of europe or in the uk or whatever Mm. um but it wasn't done in we we got rid of we changed our drug laws um in order to get america on side so it was a completely different thing again um but yeah i think as with all of these things, you've got to ask yourself, Q who benefits? Who mm-hmm. benefits from this law? Um, so, yeah, it's a takeaway point. Okay, um, I was talking about opium. Just to say that opium works slightly different. It's not really a psychedelic, obviously. It's an opiate. And mm-hmm. it's prepared in the right way, so not taking like loads of codeine tablets or whatever, because prescription meds give you a concentrated amount of it that is actually very addictive. You've got to be very careful not to get addicted to the painkilling effects. Yes. But it generally gives you a feeling of immense well-being and possibility, like you can do anything. Apparently. Don't know this from experimenting, I'd like to point out. <laughs> um, so again, yeah, there's a. I think there was a reason, obviously, it became very addicted when people were eating it or smoking it directly. Mm. um and if you if you take it in different ways if you smoke it it will make you hallucinate and you can see all sorts of things if you eat it it'll make you feel really chilled and relaxed and like the world is wonderful um again easy to see why it became addicted i would i would strongly recommend people don't experiment with it okay? um, yeah <laughs> right so to round this off before we really go too far over um a quick look at how beverages and intoxicants are used in fiction today
0: Yes, so unsurprisingly, for something which has had such a profound effect in our history um, and society um, and our literature, it's also going to appear within our literature. Definitely. We we can't obviously list everything, uh, but we do have some examples.
1: Yes, so, I mean, it does... (laughs) if you think of world building, there's a lot of Regency fantasy at the moment, like Pride and Prejudice and dragons and Mm. and, and things like that. And generally you'll have things like tea and coffee used to help build the world. And it makes sense to do so. I mean, if you think of Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell, you won't think Mm. of tea being a major thing in that, but it it adds another layer to the fact that uh, Britain had just abolished slavery and even that was being used as kind of a political tool, even though the person who was really behind it was was kind of like no i genuinely do believe all these things but he couldn't help seeing the possibility of the virtue of it yeah so it it rounded out the world building um it turns up in things like his dark materials if you the first scene where lyra is hiding um in the in the scholar's wardrobe she notes that they have dishes of smoke leaf or tobacco and sliced um sliced poppy heads which were fried and then served to people, which is basically they were eating opium. They were having after dinner conversations with golden tokay wine and fried opium. So <laughs> <laughs> it just adds another dimension to the world building. At at its most shallow level it does that. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um you can also have it as a suggested dystopia. So Samantha Shannon has done this incredibly well in the Bone Season series in the bone season tea coffee all alcohol all substances are banned instead she has oxygen bars where people can get shots of liquid oxygen um flavored as they like and she actually makes them sound quite quite delicious like there's a cherry and berry one and i'm thinking okay i know oxygen does genuinely get you slightly high but it won't actually affect your senses in the same way as say alcohol will but that actually sounded quite nice (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but this is all part of a totalitarian regime where they want you working in a certain way and they want to gradually bleed pleasure out of life. So mm. very 1984-esque in that you will, there'll be no pleasure, there'll be no sex, there'll be no love. Yeah. It's very North Korea <laughs> in that respect. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, am I... I'm, I'm not going to lie, I was never able to finish the book and I was never able to finish the film, but A Clockwork Orange they have these milk bars don't they yeah um was was the milk supposed to be supposed to be laced with some kind of psychedelic in that as well
1: it's been such a long time since i've seen the film or read the book i honestly couldn't say but that might be something worth looking into
0: okay because I just suddenly I just suddenly remembered it. I tend to suppress Clockwork
1: Orange because
0: it's so disturbing, but every now and again yes. I get a flash of it.
1: I'm <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> um, uh, Jodie Taylor's The Time Police series is also interesting because tea has become a contraband su- a substance and- in the same way that coffee has become a contraband substance because it is an intoxicant. Um, and most readers have said, Oh, God, this is so. I'm a... Okay, I'm part of her fan club on Facebook. Don't judge me. But <laughs> most of her readers are kind of like, Well, there's a world without tea? That's not right. And it's like, No, it's rationed. You get two tea bags a week. And I'm like, That wouldn't work. <laughs> Which, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of addict talk, you know. <laughs> okay, I, I legitimately could go without tea and have done It's It's not like heroin or anything like that. But I think no. it's worth bearing in mind. Every time you're having your Starbucks or whatever. Yeah.
0: Jules could go without tea, but she doesn't want to think about a world where she has to.
1: No, absolutely not. <laughs> what would the point be? Uh, some people feel like that about chocolate. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can also have evolution of culture buried under things like the doctrine of discoveries. So, again, there's this is something I'd actually really like to see. Um, I would like to see speculative fiction that goes back a little bit and you have someone rediscovering something under the doctrine of discoveries and realizing that actually they never discovered it in the first place i think there's a market there and there is definitely a gap a place for someone to really examine what that means in a speculative fiction setup and if they've done it then i want to hear about it cuz i've not found it yet
0: yeah that's a really really interesting idea and um, would what... <laughs> I think there would be a win for a lot of people. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> we've discovered tobacco. Did you discover it, did or you did you either. steal it, <laughs> Walter? <laughs> um, of course. Uh, then you also have have your MacGuffins.
1: Yes, as we talked about in a previous episode, yeah. um, an at- intoxicating substance can make an incredible MacGuffin. I mean, it's got a theoretical use. But either you've got people trying to keep it out of the wrong hands or, you you know, or, you know, it could be a plot device as well. I mean, think of the I can't remember the name of the substance that the that make the Grisha super, super Grisha-esque. And then it's incredibly addictive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, They yeah, they, they do. They have that they have that substance, which is based off of something which is kind of like tobacco and that you're yeah. meant to sort of chew it. And now, yeah, has become a substance which is highly addictive but makes them... is mind-altering, essentially, and just allows them to have full access to their their powers. I think not by changing them, but by changing their minds, essentially.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And essentially, that completely mirrors the whole transition of cocaine into crack which is very disturbing. There's a long story there that is definitely worth people checking out, Mm. but um, how crack cocaine came about. Okay, so uh, that's a whistle-stop tour through intoxicating substances. We hope you enjoyed that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Again, I just have to point it out here, Jules and I are not advocating the use of illegal substances. Um, Seriously, we are not. But we cannot ignore the huge impact that uh, psychedelic uh, substances, um, alcohol, and stimulants have had on our culture, and how what they continue to, you know, to do for us today. So yeah, yeah. So Jules finally got to talk about tea. <laughs>
1: I got to talk about tea, which is, you know, that's why I showed that's up. I just wanted to talk about, talk about tea. tea, and also
0: the bit about the coffee houses and the women's pamphlet. Yeah, I I have to admit, I, I really did enjoy that. <laughs> I I do I do have one question for you before we get to our our recommendation, Jules. Okay. Um. What's What's your your main tea blend? What's the one main tea you blend. you go for most?
1: Oh. Um... Okay, well, on a day-to-day basis, I generally go with Tetleys, mm-hmm. which is not terribly snobby at all. But I do like to try other blends and I also like herbal teas. Mm-hmm. However, my my favorite, my absolute pinnacle, if it's done right, is lapsang souchong. Okay, which gives you you don't have it with anything except water, and in my opinion, I, I, who adds milk to lapsang souchong <laughs> at <for> this time? <laughs> Um, and it just gives you this lovely smoky tea. I also like a green tea properly whipped from a powder in a chawan. So done sort of Japanese tea ceremony wise. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Proper, proper matcha. Yeah. I think, I think my I do like matcha as well. Um, yeah. It's a really acquired taste. Some people really dislike the taste, but I actually, I actually like the taste. Um, but I think probably one of my favorite types of tea is Moroccan, is Moroccan tea.
1: Okay, thing i've not tried mint
0: that. tea mint sweet moroccan mint tea is delicious it's so good and the way they pour it as well is is fantastic that's it's it's they they literally start to pour it and then they hold the teapot really really high up and you get this beautiful stream of very aromatic sweet mint tea kind of flowing through the room um it's it's delicious. So that's that's definitely my favourite. Cool. Okay. Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you've got one for us.
1: Yes, I will keep this short because I'm sure everyone is fed up with me talking by now. <laughs> but this is on Disney+. Plus. It's set in the Marvel Universe. And there is at least one season of it, which is well worth watching. It's called Hellstrom. And it follows a pair of siblings a brother and a sister who have grown up and it turned out that their father was some sort of demon and they have this host of weird powers and there is something coming back and it's really interesting it you know it's pretty diverse in its representation if that that's important to you as well Mm -hmm. and i just really like it it gives you a it gives you a convincing female character who looks like she might be on the path to being a serial killer but doing it for reasons that she believes are just she's she sort of hunts men who like to kill women but she can't deny i think that there is a part of her that actually enjoys it Mm. and it's just a really interesting take on a female character um there's also a a very very sweet nun who is involved as well Um, it's really good i don't know i think maybe it, it speaks to the part of my brain that is despite my best efforts, still a bit Catholic. So (laughs) so there's that. But I, I really enjoyed it. I think it's done really well.
0: Okay, brilliant. And on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye.
1: You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from itunes for more information visit our facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at ja and madeline please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast